Welcome to the Motivated Life Podcast. I'm Ravi Raman. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Patrick McKeown. Patrick is the author of a book called The Oxygen Advantage. And there's an interesting story behind how I came to know about Patrick's work. I believe it's important because his work is all about breathing. And if you were to go to any bookstore or one of the few remaining bookstores and look at the aisles of books in the health and fitness section, you'll see most relating to how to build stronger muscles, how to lose weight, um, new fitness routines, workout routines, those sorts of things. But what you're not going to see is a lot of books about breathing. There's a certain irony to that because well, we can go for weeks without food and a few days without water, but we can't go much more than a few minutes without breathing. It really is vitally important. And if you're a yogi, as I am, you understand the importance of breath. But in our society, we don't hear about breath being a fundamental and important thing for health. It intuitively makes sense, but most of us don't actually know what proper breathing is and what impact it can have on our life. Now, I first stumbled upon Patrick because I've been fascinated with the topic of breathing for a long, long time, ever since I was a little kid. I struggled with not asthma, but allergies, so that six months out of the year, my nose was mostly blocked. And so I stumbled into learning different ways of improving my breathing And then as I got more and more into yoga, I realized how important breathing really is. Now that said, it's easy to fall back into bad habits. And I've noticed the past couple years, my breathing has not been as good as it could be. And I stumbled upon Patrick's new book. Now, I had written a blog post many years ago, back in 2009, that was and still is my most commented blog post ever. It's on increasing your endurance through breathing through your nose. Now, what's interesting is Patrick had actually replied and commented on that blog post back in 2009. Now, here we are many years later, and I stumbled upon his book a few weeks ago and reached out. He was kind enough to offer an interview. So it's interesting how things sort of come full circle. In this interview, we're going to talk about a whole lot of stuff. And we talked for just under an hour. We probably could have spoken for days. Much of what we talk about, we're just hitting the surface level on. His book has a lot more depth, the chemistry behind what happens when we breathe uh, properly, the biochemistry behind what happens in our bodies when that happens, how our breathing is linked to performance in sport to stress and anxiety at work, to focus and concentration, and even to how our skull develops, particularly in childhood. Now, we didn't go into the weight loss aspects, though there is um, plenty of at least superficial evidence so far to show that when we get our breathing under control, we can get our weight under control. And so I think it's a very important topic and something that not enough people are talking about. So I'm proud to be able to bring you this interview. And with that, I I guess I'll stop talking now and we'll go ahead and get going with this interview with Patrick McCown, author of The Oxygen Advantage. Enjoy. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Good. Thanks very much, Ravi. It's great to be here. So where are you calling in from? So I'm calling in from the west of Ireland. It's a, I live outside a town called Galway, and mm. um, I'm out in Connemara, so I'm out in the countryside, but I've got nice views and cold weather, and it's a perfect place for good breathing. <laughs> yeah, it definitely sounds like it. So I just want to dive right in and ask you a question point blank. Mm-hmm. Can shutting your mouth really change your life? Yeah, to- totally, um, especially if you're a map reader. You know, mm. if somebody's been already n- n- nose breathing, both during wakefulness and sleep, um, 
they don't get so much out of it because obviously they're doing it anyway. But if somebody has been mouth breathing, there's no question the 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 detrimental effects of mouth breathing, um, they're they're immense. You know, in terms of I had my mouth open for twenty years. I had rhinitis, so my nose was constantly stuffed. I had asthma, and uh, generally the two will go together. And because I had rhinitis, my sleep was affected because if your nose is blocked, you're more likely to have a light sleep. Mm. I was waking up tired. And uh, because I was mouth breathing, I was breathing faster, so I tend to be more stressed. Mm. So in a nutshell, what mouth breathing did for me is it affected my sleep, so my concentration during the day was poor, so my ability to study academically was reduced. Um, It affected my stress level, so little things that would... uh, Normally, you know, people would cope quite well with them. I would get more stress, so I'd higher perceived stress than other individuals. Mm. Um, my asthma was really badly affected and often mm. required um, increased medical intervention, etc. And my nose was constantly stuffed. So I have craniofacial changes too, because mm. I had my mouth open from a child all the way through. Uh, my jaws aren't developed the way they should be. I had crooked teeth. My jaws are set back in the face. My nose is crooked now. Still, mm-hmm. I got away with it to some extent, um, but even still, your breathing through the nose is is probably the the most um, least talked about thing that a habit of a human being. Mm-hmm. We all talk about diet. We talk about physical exercise, you know, which are all great. But let's talk about breathing. Let's talk about the benefits of breathing the way our ancestors used to breathe, um, breathing the way we breathed when we were born. Mm. and countering the, the, the negative effects of, of mouth breathing is, is key. Well, let's talk about that because here's the thing. If nose breathing is so natural, why does it seem like when I go out walking down the street, it seems like everyone has their mouth hanging open, even mm-hmm. me. Um, I'm, a, I'm a yogi. I'm a meditator. I practice uh, breathing techniques, and I still find myself mouth breathing all the time. If this mm-hmm. is how we're meant to be, why is it that everyone has their mouth hanging open, sucking in air through their mouth? I think it's, it's just a habit. Um, it seems to have corresponded with modern life. Mm-hmm. The first documented cases of mouth breathing would have been back in the 1600s, now, if you think that we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, and all that time we had our mouths closed, our ancestors were nasal breeders. How did they know that? And um, they know by unearthing the skulls of our ancestors that they had a wide facial structure. Um, there was plenty of room for airway. And basically, as the child was growing up throughout her evolution, the child had the lips together, the mouth was closed, lips together, and tongue resting in the roof of the mouth because the tongue is wide-shaped. Mm. It's a wide U-shaped, and that develops the palate. So it was very clear that when anthropologists were unearthing skulls from graves of upper-middle-class individuals, and these people had had passed on the 1600s, they noticed narrow palates and gothic-shaped jaws, V-shaped jaws, overcrowding of teeth. And this was the first documented case of overcrowding of teeth. And basically, it's not because the teeth were too big. It was probably... It was because the jaws were too small and the jaws were too small because the tongue wasn't in the roof of the mouth and the tongue wasn't in the roof of the mouth because the individual was mouth breathing. You can't have your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth if you're breathing through your mouth. Mm. Um, so by breathing through your nose, you've, your tongue is resting there, which is the correct resting position of the tongue. And I don't just mean the tip of the tongue. I mean three quarters of your tongue resting in the roof of the mouth. But in order to mouth breathe, if the nose was stuffy or... You know, if there was any anatomical issue going on in the nose, um, you have to have your mouth open, so you're breathing through your mouth. But in order to breathe through your mouth, you can't have your tongue resting there. And why did it all happen? Well, upper middle class people had access to sugar. They had access to more kind of modernized foods, even back in the 1600s. Sugar has been around for a long time in Europe. It's been around since the, the 11th century. So sugar... Um, seems to be some factor in contributing to open mouth breathing. It's a way of life now. Mm, what is the link between sugar and mouth breathing? What do you, what are? You it, it's very there? difficult to know precisely, but it just seems to be you know a suggestion that when we changed our diets, our breathing also changed. Mm. And it may be simply because the metabolism um, there's extra work involved in terms of sugar that it seems to be contributing to. Um, inflammation of the airways and inflammation of the nasal cavity, inflammation of the lungs. 
and um, that there's some link there. It's difficult to quantify it. Um, but back in the 1930s, uh, a dentist called Dr. Weston Price, he wrote a book called Fit Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And his work involved traveling from different, from country to country. And he looked at the, the traditional people in these countries and he noticed they had tremendous facial structures. They had wide faces and they had no overcrowding of teeth. They had really wide U-shaped jaws, good airways, etc. And he noticed that within one generation, that when these individuals started eating processed foods, that children became mouth breeders. So he, he documented that back in 1932, I think it might have been 1938, and that one generation of processed foods causes individuals to switch from, from, from nose to mouth breathing. And, you know, as European settlers in, in the United States, there was an American painter called George Catlin, and he thought that the, the traditions of the Native American Indians were dying out. So he went and lived with them for one year. And he wrote a book, this is going back to the 1800s, 1870 mm-hmm. or thereabouts, and he, he said that the native Indian mother, every time that they put the child asleep, the child went to bed, um, the mother would go over to the child and gently press the lips together. Mm-hmm. And he said this was tremendous. This was a tremendous uh, you know, act for a mother to do for a growing baby. Mm-hmm. And then he spoke about the European settlers and their mouths wide open, they're lying on their backs and their mouths wide open. And he said they were gasping into the multitude. So he wrote a book called Shut Your Mouth and Save Your Life. Mm-hmm. And that's going back. So this is going back a long time. There's been other books written, uh, Yogi Books of 1903. Mm-hmm. I think it's called The Science of Breath. And it says one of the most common habits. And mm-hmm. um, this is back in 1903, mouth breathing. Yeah. And that man is subject to many diseases as a result of it. And you could say, well, that's a bit of an exo- over-exaggeration, but let's look at even some of the changes that happen as a result of mouth breathing. Mm-hmm. Number one is um, you're not taking conditioned air into the lungs. We we often think the skin is the, is the organ of the body that's in most contact with the atmosphere. So your skin, the area of your skin is about two meters squared. Um, and people are aware of the benefits. So you have to put on suntan lotion or sunscreen or whatever. You know, you want to protect your skin uh, against the elements. But the real organ that's in contact with atmosphere is the lungs. Mm-hmm. Your lungs are 75 to 100 meters squared. If you were to area, open up the area of contact with the small air sacs, you know, there's 300 million of them per lung. There's about 500 million for the, for the two lungs. And the area of contact of the small air sacs with the atmosphere is 75 meters to, to 100 meters square. Mm-hmm. And that's 50, up to 50 times more extensive the area than I'm in contact with the skin. And, if you breathe through an open mouth, that atmosphere, that atmospheric air is going directly straight into the lungs. So in terms of people with asthma or people with bronchoconstriction, it causes cooling of the airways, it causes drying out of the airways. It causes moisture literally to be sucked out of the airways, and this in turn causes inflammation of the airways. Mm. And if there's inflammation in the lungs that travels up to the nose, and if there's inflammation of the nose that travels down to the lungs, so since about 2013, doctors now have recognized a unified airway model. Because before that, an ENT, ear, nose, and throat specialist, they'd look specifically after the nose, and a pulmonologist would look after the lungs. When in actual fact, mm. whatever's happening in one will tend to happen in the other. Mm. So unified airway model is very important, and the recognition of it, because if your nose is blocked and your mouth breathing, your sleep is affected. Mm. Um, people with rhinitis or allergic rhinitis would be hay fever for example Mm -hmm. and that affects about 30 percent of the western population yeah you're talking to a sufferer a severe (laughs) allergy sufferer that causes much of my mouth breathing though i'm now trying to actively uh, stay nose breathing and well ravi you're no you're going to know the connection then with sleep because if you've got allergic rhinitis um you're twice as likely to have sleep problems right so then we wake up tired and if you wake up tired our concentration is affected Mm mm-hmm uh, mouth breathing in terms of dental health dries out the mouth because saliva is an anti-plaque agent. Saliva is very good for 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 good gum health, you know, because mm-hmm. it's helping to to neutralize bacteria in the mouth, and that the mouth harbors a lot of bacteria. Mm-hmm. But if you're breathing through the mouth, the mouth is dry, bacteria is more rampant, gums are mm-hmm. affected, the upper airways um, are pretty much traumatized by taking that cold, dry air into the lungs. Mm-hmm through the mouth and uh, we're more prone to dental cavities and gum disease and bad breath 
bad breath <laughs> also is a factor <laughs> right. of mouth breathing. So right. that's dental health and sleep is affected. Mm-hmm. Um, the lower airways, the lungs are affected for those with asthma. Stress levels. So Stanford yes. Medical that's- School. They, they located a pacemaker in the brain in March of this year. They said that this pacemaker is spying on your breathing. And if you breathe fast, the pacemaker relays signals of agitation throughout the brain. But if you breathe really slow, um, the pacemaker, which is spying on your breathing, relays signal of calm. So it's not just that stress causes our breathing to be fast, but fast breathing causes our mind to be agitated mm. now if mm. you if you have an open mouth you're going to breathe fast because your nose imposes 50 percent restriction to your breathing than your mouth mm. during the day so what you're saying is uh for those of us that aren't uh, we'll talk about the athletic application here because for me that's the one that seems very mm-hmm. counterintuitive but yep. it makes sense when i apply it we'll talk about that in a second sure but for those who are not professional or even amateur athletes they're professional office workers. Yeah. Let's talk about why this really matters. Why should they shut their mouth, learn to breathe through their nose if they're looking for focus, concentration, lower stress, higher performance at work? Yeah, well, first to sleep, as I spoke about. If you have your mouth open during sleep, you're far more to snore, far more likely to snore. You're far more likely to have obstructive sleep apnea. It increases the risk of that. Um, you have a lighter sleep, so they've done experiments with men and they've blocked their noses on one night to force them to mouth breathe. And then they blocked their mouths on another night to force them to nose breathe. Mm-hmm. And then they subjectively and objectively measured their sleep quality. During mouth breathing, every parameter was reduced. Um, they found that the individual spent more time in light sleep, less time in deep sleep. Um, the number of Apnea, hypopnea index, basically the restriction to breathing had significantly increased. Mm-hmm. So sleep disturbances is greatly increased as a result of open mouth breathing. What now, is in, in the mechanism for that? What do you sure. think is going on that causes disruptive sleep? Because there's still, you're still getting air in. If you're, you're getting air in, but the key is here is dry mouth. Is it how much resistance mouth? to it is there? You know, breathing through the nose during the day imposes resistance to your breathing. But in actual fact, the opposite happens during your sleep. Um, so you're two and a half times more likely to have sleep disorders, breathing through an open mouth versus breathing through the nose. I think it's, it's the architecture of the airways. When the mouth is hanging open, the, the volume of the diameter of the airway, which is including the throat, um, down into the trachea, that's significantly reduced. So there's a greater resistance to your breathing. And with a resistance to your breathing, the sleep quality is affected. And also, breathing through the nose will tend to involve a fuller, deeper breath because it's the nose breathing that activates the diaphragm, but it's mouth breathing that activates the chest. Now, if you breathe through your nose, you'll tend to use your diaphragm. And if you're using your diaphragm, the muscles that are keeping the airways open in the throat are more likely to stay open. So there's a communication feedback between the muscles of the diaphragm and the muscles of the throat. Mm. And there's another thing going on that... If you breathe with an open mouth, you dry out the upper airways and they're more likely to be sticky. So if they collapse during sleep, they're more likely to stay collapsed for a longer period of time. So the severity of the sleep apnea increases. Another factor is nitric oxide. If you breathe through your nose, you pick up nitric oxide and you carry this nitric oxide into your lungs. But nitric oxide is a signaling molecule and that sends a message to the airways, or sorry, to the muscles of the throat um, to stay open. Mm-hmm. So your airway is functioning far better by breathing through your nose. It's almost as if man and woman was designed to breathe through the nose, um, not through the mouth. And even in terms of, you know, they, they looked at studies swift back in 1988, uh, individuals who had jaw surgery and their, their jaws were wired shut. And they found that individuals who were forced to breathe through the nose, the oxygen uptake in the blood was 10 to 15% greater. Now, breathing through the nose also increases end tidal CO2. So end tidal CO2 is is basically the amount of CO2 in the lungs, which equals the amount of CO2 in the blood. And carbon dioxide is very important because in order for oxygen transfer to take place from the blood to the cells, you need CO2. But if you're breathing hard and if you're breathing with an open mouth, you've lower end tidal CO2. And as a result the oxygen isn't released so readily from the red blood cells to the cells. So mm. mouth breathers, Google it. 
You know, you put in <laughs> mouth breather into Google, what, what do you think it comes up with? Um, the first thing that comes up is that it's a stupid person. So a mouth breather <laughs> is a stupid person. And they usually equate that as it's the most derogatory term. I was watching a film there. Mm. It's called a family man. I was flying from Australia to, uh, to Ireland there, but two days ago. Mm-hmm. And they were giving out, there's this sales guy, this family guy, and he's a, he's a head hunter. And he's talking about his, his group of mouth breeders. And it's the most derogatory term that they could use was to call somebody a mouth breeder. <laughs> and that's how society looks at it. And you could say, yeah, well, generally the term is used because if you're not conscious enough of breathing through your nose, you're pretty stupid. Like that's kind of the, the inference <laughs> on it. But mouth breathing does reduce oxygen delivery to the brain. Mm-hmm. Mouth breathing is affecting sleep, so mouth breathers so do counter- tend to. It's so counterintuitive, but yeah, but, but you know, uh, if, in your book, you lay out the science behind why that's actually happening. Yeah, I yeah, know it's this. This science is not new. This science is going back to 1904. Mm-hmm. The Bohr effect. Uh, da- Danish physiologist Christian Bohr he said that the the pr- partial pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood is very important because it determines the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen. Mm-hmm. So basically, we have. When oxygen passes into the lungs and it passes from the lungs into the blood, it's carried two ways in the blood. Oxygen is carried two ways in the blood. Most of it is carried by hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is is a protein that carries four units of oxygen. And hemoglobin allows 70 times more oxygen to be carried than otherwise would be. So hemoglobin is the big carrier of oxygen. Mm. And the second way that oxygen is carried in the blood is directly dissolved in it. Now, it's a very small amount. It's three milliliters of oxygen for one liter of blood. Mm. So the vast majority of oxygen is carried in the blood by red blood cells, uh, by hemoglobin. So you can imagine this hemoglobin is the carrier of oxygen. And the condition that allows the red blood cell or the hemoglobin to release oxygen is an increase of body temperature or an increase of what's called this phosphoglycerate or carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide here is very important because your breathing will directly influence the amount of carbon dioxide in the lungs and the amount of carbon dioxide in the lungs will equal the amount of carbon dioxide in the blood. Mm. So how you breathe directly influences the carbon dioxide partial pressure of CO2 in the in the blood. If you breathe hard and you get rid of too much CO2, the hemoglobin holds on to oxygen. And basically that's the Bohr effect. The Bohr effect states... Okay. If there's an increase of carbon dioxide, there's a reduction of blood pH. Mm-hmm. And with that, um, hem- the red blood cells releases oxygen more readily. Now, conversely, if we're breathing harder or breathing more than what we should be, hemoglobin holds on to oxygen. So here's the interesting thing. The harder we breathe, the less oxygen gets delivered. Hmm. The lighter we breathe, the more oxygen gets delivered. And in terms of stress, it's probably the easiest way to think of this. Right, because I'm, 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 what I'm, what I'm, so in the workplace, you know, what I'm hearing you say is that when you breathe properly, you have the proper pH, the hemoglobin is able to release the oxygen. You can actually oxygenate your body more with a lower volume of breath through the nose than with gasping for air through the mouth. And from a worker perspective, if I want to have energy all day long and I want to get oxygen to my cells, then this can really, really help. And not only in sleep, but also during the work day. Now, one question for you is, during the workday, so I'm a coach and I work with leaders in tech companies, helping them with their performance mm-hmm. and stress and anxiety oftentimes come up people working yes. against deadlines. And it seems to me that uh, a body that's more oxygenated can better deal with stress. And in my own life, I've noticed that when I'm nose breathing, I'm able to deal with stress or I just don't get stressed at all. <laughs> really? I mean, I'm just able to recover very quickly what have you discovered in terms of the impact of stress and anxiety with the breath? I think there's, um, I think we really need to look at blood flow to the brain. Mm. And it's not that we're asking people to underbreed, but it's that we're recognizing that modern society is literally causing us to breathe too much. Um, if you think of your office worker, they could be on the phone all day. And if you're, if you're talking all day on the phone or even talking, you know, in meetings, etc., your breathing volume increases. And as your breathing volume increases, it's causing a disturbance to blood gases. So blood vessels constrict unless oxygen gets delivered. 
And one organ that's going to receive less oxygen is the brain. So the carotid arteries, which are feeding the blood, the brain with oxygen, and the carotid arteries can constrict by up to 50% from overbreathing. Hmm. And McGarrion is a researcher. He wrote a paper called Hyperventilation Syndrome, a Diagnosis Begging for Recognition. He said for every one millimeter decrease of CO2, blood flow to the brain reduced by 2%. It's also been known in the rash that carbon dioxide is a very calming effect. And the paper is saying that basically um, the brain, by regulating breathing, regulates its own excitability. And another factor is in 2016 paper, they looked at the effect of mouth breathing. And basically when you breathe through an open mouth, the brain, the oxygen demand by the brain increases, but the oxygen delivery to the brain reduces. So the brain needs more oxygen, but gets less. They're saying that this is contributing to central fatigue. So we can influence by focusing on the breath and by slowing down our breathing. And by slowing down our breathing, we're almost that we're resetting the breathing center in the brain towards a better breathing volume. It's not the exercise that's the, the key. I want to change everyday breathing. I want people breathing through their nose and breathing lightly. And the only way you know you're doing that is, is with a higher bolt score. Hmm. So as bolt score increases and breath hold time, which is pretty much the bolt score, that's an indirect measurement of your CO2. So by giving you an indirect measurement of your CO2, you then have some feedback of, you know, in terms of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve or the amount of oxygen that's delivered to the brain. Ultimately, the brain needs more oxygen. So we'd want to breathe that way to feed it. Hmm. So maybe we can talk about two things now. One, I'd love it if you can just describe how you would describe the optimal breath to sort of give us a paint that picture. And the second, let's talk about the Bolt score, what it is, why it's important, and maybe how people can can go measure. And of course, I'll include references to your book where you go into all the details. But if, if we can talk about those two things, so maybe if you can paint the picture of the perfect breath and, sure. and what the bolt score is. So the perfect breath is light, it's quiet, it's gentle. Um, if you were to look at somebody breathing, it's very difficult to detect our breathing. It's through the nose and it's driven by the diaphragm and there's a gentle pause on the exhale. So I thought I'd say that again. It's light, it's quiet, it's gentle. It's through the nose, in and out, in and out of the nose, not just in, in through the nose and out through the mouth, but both in and out of the nose. It's driven by the diaphragm. So the primary breathing during rest is driven by the diaphragm. And as soon as you exhale, there's a gentle pause before you feel the need to breathe in again. And that's good breathing. Conversely, um, unhealthy breathing is through the mouth, using the chest, irregular breathing, effortful breathing, um, fast breathing. And it's not that you're having a panic attack, but it's just that your breathing volume is faster than what it should be. And it's typically the breathing associated with stress. So it's no coincidence that how we breathe during stress are also the same elements that are involved in breathing pattern disorders. Now, taking into consideration BOLT, BOLT is a very good score in terms of as your BOLT score increases, you're more likely to breathe using your diaphragm. If you have a low BOLT score, you're more likely to breathe using your chest. If you've got a low BOLT score, you're more likely to have a faster respiratory rate and reduce lung function. Um, And BOLT score basically is... You Before take we your... get into the bolt score, I, yeah. have a, I have a clarifying uh, question. Maybe you can talk about because when you say that optimal breath is light, you know, there's a misnomer um, that uh, proper breath is, you know, a deep big inhale, yes, <laughs> and a deep big exhale. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe if you can talk to really how light a breath should be. I know it was surprising to me to learn really how light an optimal breath is. So in terms of quantifying it, if you look at somebody's breathing, it should be difficult to see their breath. Um, There's a book in Taoist Yoga, was written in 1980, and it said that the perfect man, no, sorry, they said that your breathing should be so smooth that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move. Now, can you imagine breathing so lightly that the fine hairs within the nostrils do not move? And then Lao Tzu, Chinese philosopher, so from 500 B.C., 
He said that the perfect person breeds as if they do not breed. Um, trout, trout are, you know, if we're looking at turning towards Eastern medicine and Eastern martial arts, it was all about taking light breathing. Um, there's a Tai Chi master, grandmaster, her name is Master Jennifer Lee. And I met her in London about 10 years ago and I looked at her breathing and her breathing was absolutely perfect. It was regular. It was so light. The amplitude of the breath was so gentle. It was difficult to see and it was perfect. And her bolt score was 40 seconds. Hmm. And I asked her, I said, how come you so good breathing? And she said, well, this has been passed down from generation to generation. And she said during Tai Chi, if the judges, um, if they see a competitor breed, points are deducted. So the whole emphasis there was light breathing. Mm. Mm. And if you go to the ancient sutras in yoga, it's not about taking big breaths. It's not about breathing hard. In actual fact, hard breathing is to be avoided. It's all about mm. subtle breaths. Mm. So they and use the so, word subtle. Okay. Subtle, right. And, you know, as a, as a yoga teacher myself, it's amazing how many people, including I used to teach this way, um, instruct their students to take a big, deep breath in. Yes. And a big, but, deep breath you know, out. And, and what? even encourage sighing. I, I remember even in classes, sometimes I'd say, okay, now let out a sigh because it feels good. It does. It does because it stretches everything and relaxes it. Mm. Um, but a sigh is, is a regular breathing. And it's only an individual who's really stressed or somebody with breathing pattern disorders who tends to sigh a lot because our breathing should be regular throughout the day. You know, Ravi, I think the best way to, to determine the truth in breathing is, is to have your listeners sit back, put one hand on chest, one hand on tummy, or one hand on chest, one hand above their, their navel, and just to tune into their breath with their lips closed, breathing gently in and out of the nose, and just for them to start softening the breathing. Uh, to feel the, the slightly colder air coming into the nose and the slightly warmer air leaving the nose and to start gently softening and slowing down the breath and to mm. slow down their breathing to the point that they feel air hunger and then to breathe really lightly and really gently to maintain that feeling of air hunger. And the feeling of air hunger just signifies that carbon dioxide is increasing in the blood. So the lighter you breathe, carbon dioxide increases in the blood and look at the physiological responses. Feel the physiological responses of what happens when you make your breathing really light. Mm. Check your body temperature. Check the amount of water you slide in the mouth. Mm. Check your mental alertness. And normally what happens is that the vast majority of people, when they really slow down their breathing, and I mean slowing it down mm. to the point of air hunger, because yes. air hunger is the key, their body temperature increases, they get warmer. They've got increased watery saliva in the mouth, which is activation of the parasympathetic response, the body's relaxation response, and they get drowsy. So we can bring somebody from a state of sympathetic, mm. from a state of stress into relaxation mm. in three to four minutes. Yeah. But that's not by taking the big breath. That's by right. taking a light breath. And the other thing is like, what does the word deep mean? If you were to look in the dictionary, the word deep means far from the top. Mm. So in terms of the lungs, deep means using your diaphragm. Well, the only way you can breathe deeply is breathing through your nose. Like right. if you, as you sit there or as your, your listeners sit there, mm -hmm. if they look down at their chest and they take a breath through their mouth, they'll see that mouth breathing activates the upper chest. Mouth breathing is a shallow breath. So we're all about deep breathing, mm. but light breathing. Mm. Right. Now let's talk about uh, the Bolt score because you mentioned it. And what I'd love to talk about is the Bolt score. You mentioned a couple numbers, uh, 40 seconds, for example, in the case yes. of the uh, Tai Chi individual. Yeah. But let's talk about what it is, why it matters, and how one would figure out their own Bolt score. And sure. then I do want to make sure we talk a bit about how all of this applies to people who are, let's say, marathon runners or triathletes yes. and how it can help them. Yeah. Uh, the bolt score, breath hold time has been investigated for many years. Um, 1919, there was a colonel in the, either the US or the British Army. His name was Colonel Flack. And it was published in the, in the Lancet Medical Journal. But basically, he used breath hold time as a measurement of stress in pilots. And on one occasion, he sent up, a pilot was sent up but had a low breath hold time. And that pilot came down and crashed and died. And as a result, they introduced breath hold time as a measurement of stress in pilots. Mm. 
and the breath hold time that you had to espouse to was 30 seconds. Now, bold score is you take a normal breath in, normal breath out, and you pinch your nose. And you count how many seconds it takes until you feel the first distinct reaction of the body to breathe. And then you let go, and your breath at the end should be pretty normal. Um, so it's not a test of how long you can hold your breath for. It's only a test until you feel the first physiological reaction of your body to take a breath. So what would that physiological reaction be? Is it like a little feeling of a little desire to breathe in or is it just discomfort? How would you describe it? It can depend on the person. Some people feel it, their diaphragm contracts. Hmm. Like if you think of it this way, if you hold your breath, there's going to be some point that your brain is going to say breathe. So you may feel your diaphragm contracting as the body, because literally what happens is you're holding your breath, carbon dioxide increasing in the blood, uh, blood pH is decreasing, and the respiratory center is reacting to that. It's going to send a stimulus to breathe. So some individuals will feel the diaphragm moving downwards. Uh, you may feel the throat muscles. It's kind of like a feeling like a swallow, or just might be the first stress to breathe, the first stress of the body to breathe, and the breath at the end should be normal. So it measures, it's an indirect measurement of end tidal CO2, as I said, and it measures the onset and endurance of breathlessness. Hmm. So it measures how soon do you get breathless, both during rest and also during physical exercise, and how breathless are you across a given level of physical exercise. Hmm. So it's a very good test, I think, for athletes, because if you've got a low bolt score, it means that your breathing is going to be hard. And, and low you, would be less than what? Less than 20 is the cutoff, okay. you know. Anybody less than 20 seconds, it's an indicator of breathing pattern disorders or it's an indicator that your breathing could be substantially improved. That would be me. <laughs> you know, but My like, bolt this morning, I did a couple tests. So just for the listeners out there, I've been recommitting to practicing the oxygen advantage techniques in the book for the past seven days. My first bolt score was 11 seconds seven days ago. Mm-hmm. And every morning I do um, uh, several tests. And this morning I had three tests and one was 21 seconds and then the next two were 18. So that's okay. sort of where I fit. Now, that's only been a week and I've seen... But that's a good, that's a good improvement in a week. That really good improvement, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, in terms of the measurement itself, you know, if we've got an individual with a bolt score of 10 seconds, they get very breathless very quickly. They go do physical exercise and they're they're going to run out of air. So it's a measurement of how much air do you need for a given level of exercise. Mm. Now, there's a benefit to having a higher bolt score because, first of all, you're going to have less feeling of breathlessness. Another aspect of it is that your diaphragm, your, your breathing muscles, they consume oxygen. And the harder you breathe, the more oxygen that's consumed. So during normal breathing, there's about 2 to 3% of your oxygen intake that goes just directly to support the respiratory muscles. Mm. Now, if you're doing fairly intense physical exercise, 10% of your oxygen intake is supporting your breathing muscles. If you do really intense physical exercise, it increases to 15%. So the harder you breathe, the more oxygen that's going just to support the breathing muscles. But the other aspect is, the lower your bolt score, the more you are breathing too much. And if you're breathing too much, you're getting rid of too much CO2. And as a result, there's less oxygen getting delivered to the tissues. And then you'll get anaer- you'll go anaerobically quicker. So your mm. VO2 max reduces. Mm. So running economy, VO2 max. Um, basically, it's a measure of how much oxygen is de- delivered to mm. your cells. An indirect measurement. Like it'll give you some feedback on that. And from that aspect, I think it's a very useful, like you said, your bolt score was 11 seconds. I've measured Olympic athletes and their Mm. bolt score was 11 seconds. And you'd wonder how on earth are they competing? And this wasn't a year after the event. I'm talking about a month before an event. Um, And it it would really, there's no question, Mm. it would dramatically hold them back. Mm. So if if a bolt of less than 10 is compromised and less than 20 is suboptimal, what do you think is a good bolt score for people who just want to live their lives and not be constrained by their breathing? What should It has to be above 25. Okay. Yeah, it has to be above 25. Like the absolute goal is 40. Not everybody achieves it. Um, It takes a lot of work. 
if individuals are talking a lot during their day or if they're stressed, you know, their bolt score is going to be reduced. However, having a higher bolt will enable you to talk and enable you to, to be able to cope with stress a lot better. Um, because in order to improve your bolt score, you have to have attention on your breath. And when you have attention on your breath, you're taking attention out of the mind. So you're restructuring the, you know, a number of different parts of the brain. There's up to eight different regions of the brain that alter in response to following the breath. And the one thing that I'll say is, you know, in terms of a meditation, meditation is absolutely wonderful. Um, but we often find that when we're having people follow their breath and focus on their breathing, when the goal is to achieve an air hunger, the mind tends to be more anchored to the breath. So there's less likely for the mind to wander. And then when the mind is forced to pay attention exclusively to the breath for a period of time, you're training the brain. So the distracted mind is reducing. Mm. And at the same time, you're opening up blood flow. So your blood vessels dilate and the amount of oxygen delivery to the brain is increasing. And that's got a calming effect. So we're helping a number of ways in terms of stress. One is get a better night's sleep. Breathe through your nose. Don't wake up with a dry mouth in the morning. If you have a dry mouth in the morning, it tells you straight away that you're, you're mouth breathing, your sleep is lighter. Number two, in your everyday practice, follow your breathing. Mm. It's very, very, very good for honing attention, for improving concentration. Because what's concentration other than your ability to hold your attention on something for a period of time without distraction? Mm-hmm. And distraction is now endemic. You know, modern technology is, is a distraction. Mm-hmm. How many times does your mobile phone send you an alert? You've got emails there. You've got text messaging. You're bouncing from an email to a text message to another email. You're on your job, but you close off the job and you check your emails. You check your texts. You're checking your phones 40, 50 more times, you know, in a small, short period of time. The mind is very distracted. Microsoft did a study back in 2000 mm-hmm. and they measured the average attention span of 3,000 people from Canada. And they found at the time it was 12 seconds. That's back in the year 2000. <laughs> it's now, probably getting a lot worse. Got, gotten a lot yeah, worse well, they repeated the same study in 2012. <laughs> yeah. And they found that the attention span had reduced to 8 seconds. Yeah. And they said, this is a problem. They said, because a goldfish has an attention span of 9 seconds. Mm. So if you Google Microsoft goldfish study, you'll see the results of that. Now, this is a problem because if the attention span is reducing, it means our mind is more distracted. It also contributes to stress. Mm-hmm. It contributes to anxiety. Mm-hmm. But then Matthew Gillingworth, they were Harvard researchers, they tracked uh, 250,000 data points. I think it was 5,000 individuals. And they asked them the question. They did it by an app called trackyourhappiness.org. And they asked individuals a question, are you thinking about something other than what you're doing at this time? Mm. And the conclusion that they reached was that the human being, unlike other animals, the human being's mind wanders a lot. And oftentimes we're doing something, but our attention isn't on what we're doing. So we could be reading a page, but our attention isn't on the page. Our attention is stuck in our head. In other words, we're going around living in our head. And they found that... They found that the more distracted the mind, the less happy we are. Yes. So they are saying that there's a direct relationship between increased thought activity, increased mm-hmm. wandering minds, and even if the wandering mind was a positive thought, it didn't matter. Right. Thinking is thinking. If you haven't got the ability to control the mind, mm-hmm. you're going to be less happy. And, yeah. you know, if we think about, people often talk about the millennials. I was in Sydney there just waiting at the airport, and I switched off my phone um, I bought a smartphone about seven years ago and I still have the second grade Samsung. I'm very mm-hmm. proud to admit it. Um, <laughs> now that it's on grade eight or whatever it's on. Mm-hmm. And within about three days, I rang a phone, phone who's a, a mobile carrier. And I said, take me off this 3G or take me off whatever. I said, I don't want mobile. I don't want internet. I don't want emails. I don't want any of this stuff. I want a phone. A phone is my phone. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting on Sydney airport and I had time just to, to wait for a flight. And I looked around, everybody stuck in their mobile phones. Right. Everybody. Um, young, old, male, female, didn't matter. Um, you know, and I, didn't, I said, I was just saying, is there an exception to this? Yeah, some people weren't stuck in their mobile phones, they were stuck mm-hmm. in their laptops. 
which was pretty much mm. the equivalent of it. Mm. And that's where our attention is going. You know, yeah. every waking moment, it's almost that we're bored if we have nothing to do, mm. that we have to use our phone and the mind is constantly yeah. distracted. Well, and a distracted mind is no use. That's right. And what, what I've witnessed and I, what I'm hearing you say is that by bringing attention back to our breath, it yes. actually provides us a built-in tool to yeah. not have to be able to live in a world with distraction, engage in a world with distraction, but not be as distracted. Yeah, totally. And uh, that's, I mean, something the yogis have been talking about for a long, long time. Yes. And <laughs> uh, the mind follows the breath. Um, and yeah. it's something that you're really bringing back, uh, bringing yes. back to the public awareness, which is really fantastic. Now, um, there's, there's a, couple points I want to talk about very quickly in our final few minutes. One is, you know, there will be people listening who will wonder, okay, this is all fine if I'm sitting at work, if I'm going for a walk, but I'm training for the Boston Marathon. I'm training for Ironman Canada. I'm a long distance hiker climbing mountains. Should I, this doesn't apply to me. Right. They're going to think this doesn't apply to them, but sure. What you're really saying is no, breathe through the nose all the time and it will help. Is that really, is that really what you're saying? The key, the key message, like I put it in the book because if you're an elite athlete, um, you want to spend some of your time breathing through the nose during physical exercise and some of the time breathing through your mouth because you won't attain a hundred percent work rate by nasal breathing exclusively but you will attain 85 to 90%. 90%. Um, so for a recreational athlete, the, the importance of nose breathing is, is huge. Nose breathing, better gas exchange, better oxygen uptake. It's easier on the airways. Um, it's a more quality of breathing. It's a, it's a quality of fitness and also improved recovery. So your quality of your workout is much better by breathing through the nose. Hmm. But you mightn't be able to attain 100% work rate that you would have ordinarily. Now, as your boat score increases, your ability to attain a higher work rate also improves. So if you're an elite athlete, I always, with, with elite athletes, I let, you know, we spend 50, say 50% of the time training with the mouth closed. This adds an extra load onto the breathing muscles. This allows deeper breathing. And because in actual fact, most concentration of blood is in the lower lobes of the lungs. So the lower parts of the lungs have the greatest concentration of blood. But if you're breathing through your mouth, you're taking more air into the upper part. So it's inefficient in terms of a gas exchange. So elite athletes is to spend yeah about 50% of their time breathing through their nose exclusively and to alternate with mouth breathing whenever they need to do an all-out effort. And that's in order to prevent muscle deconditioning. So nose breathing is also huge for an elite athlete and nose breathing during sleep. And for that, we actually use a paper tape. Okay. Um, because it's the one way to guarantee it. Now, you could say, well, is it just all about no, nose breathing? No, it's not. If you breathe effectively, you'll get a higher boat score. We're all about changing everyday breathing patterns. Mm -hmm. And you change your everyday breathing patterns by actively slowing down the breath, focusing on the breath. And it's almost that you're resetting the breathing center in the brain towards a higher tolerance of CO2 and when you've got a higher tolerance of CO2, well, it means that when you're doing physical exercise and as your cells begin to produce more and more CO2, that your ventilation doesn't have to increase to as much as it would ordinarily. Now, another aspect of that is we do breath holding. Uh, so we do simulation of altitude training. During a sprint, normally, your oxygen levels, well, you know, they won't drop by all that much, but they'll drop during a sprint down to about 93%. Mm. say from a norm of 95 to 99%. And your carbon dioxide will stay pretty much constant because your ventilation will increase sufficiently, you know, in order to keep carbon dioxide the same. So we, we do breath holding to greatly disturb the blood acid base balance. So we have an individual breathe in through their nose, breathe out through their nose, pinch their nose, and I'd have them walk. Mm. And as the air hunger gets a little bit stronger, I have them jog. And as it gets stronger again, I have them sprint. And then I have them let go and breathe through the nose and get their breathing back towards normal. And we use a little pulse oximeter as well to measure their blood oxygen saturation. It's a little finger held device that you just put on your finger. And basically it's got an infrared light there to detect if hemoglobin is saturated with oxygen. Now we drop SpO2 
generally to about 85%. Um, that's simulation, simulating an altitude of about 5,000 meters. We also greatly increase carbon dioxide, most certainly from 40 to 50 millimeter of mercury. So we're disturbing the blood acid base balance. We're stimulating anaerobic glycolysis. We're pushing the body into such an oxygen debt and a high carbon dioxide that the body then is forced to adapt to that. Um, and what happens then is the buffering capacity increases. So there's two aspects, you know, we, we change everyday breathing so we can improve bolt, but we can also push the athlete to the extremes because the breathing muscles don't get trained during physical training. Swimming is probably the only exception to it because you're breathing against resistance. And in order to develop a muscle, you have to add an extra load onto it. Uh, when you do breath holding, you'll feel your breathing muscles contracting. As you hold your breath, your breathing muscles will contract more and more and more. You'll feel them, you know, kind of involuntary movement of the breathing muscles in response to the breath hold when you're giving your breathing muscles a workout. Mm-hmm. So you're breathing, giving your breathing muscles a workout to improve respiratory muscle strength. You're also changing blood gases. You're improving buffering capacity. Um, there's other aspects of it. You generate EPO, erythropoietin. Mm. If you do a strong breath hold, legally, legally, <laughs> legally yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really put on the map now since the Tour de France and all the carry on that's going there. Yeah. But you know that kind of shows the degrees to which these athletes will do. Mm. Um, the margin in terms of performance between top athletes is a half a percent. Mm. So if you can get a half a percent to one percent in terms of improvement, that's all an elite athlete needs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's, I feel like we can, we could probably talk for days. And in fact, you do lead workshops and train people in this over days. Mm. <laughs> um, yes, we but do. I'm, I'm wondering in this, in the last maybe minute, if, if you can leave the listeners with a couple things they can do starting today. Now imagine someone who's been a habitual mouth breather, they might have allergies, but yeah. they're, they're interested in getting started. What would you recommend? Sure. Well, the first thing I'd say is sit down, measure your bolt score. The lower your bolt, the more improvement for breathing. Uh, the second thing is if you have allergies is hold your breath to free up your nose. Breath holding and physical exercise has been known since 1923 to open up your nose. Now, if a female is pregnant, if you've any, if you've any serious medical complaints, don't do any breath holding. And you're saying hold it until the initial urge to breathe. No, don't hold it until you turn yeah. blue in the face. <laughs> Well, no, with the, with the bowl score, all right, hold it until the initial urge. Um, but in order to unblock your nose, you have to hold your breath for quite a while. So you want to hold your breath until a fairly strong air hunger. But at the end, make sure you breathe through your nose. Wait a minute and do it again and do that five times. Now, the exercise for unblocking the nose is, is simple. It's like this. Take a normal breath into your nose, normal breath out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose and start walking. And keep walking until you feel a pretty strong air hunger. Then let go and breathe in through your nose and calm your breathing. Wait a minute and do it again. So all it is is breathe in through your nose, breathe out through your nose, pinch your nose, hold your nose and start walking. Keep walking until the air hunger gets pretty strong. Then let go, breathe through your nose and calm your breathing. Do that five times. Your nose will be opened. Mm -hmm. If your nose isn't open, then you have a structural issue. Mm -hmm. The more you breathe through your nose, the more the nose stays open. Um, so that's another thing, you know, even if you've been mouth breathing for the last 20 years, there's no way you are performing to the best of your ability by going around with your mouth open. Mm. And also think about there's no, you know, there's, there's a reason that mouth breathers have been called mouth breathers in derogatory terms. Mm. Um, in terms of dental health, bad breath, you know, gum disease, drying out the upper airways, it affects your sleep, it affects just so many aspects that are affected by just simply mouth breathing. Not to mention the snoring. Snoring. Yeah, <laughs> your your partner will thank you or whoever's yeah. in your house will thank yeah. you. you yeah. know, no, I... you can still snore through your nose. I'll kind of give you a definition <laughs> of it, Ravi. If, if you snore with your mouth, it sounds like this. So there's a vibration of the soft tissue at the back of the throat. But if you snore through your nose, it sounds like this. So mm. it's, there is a difference. However, we can, we can have addressed both. You can simply, we use a small paper tape to get the mouth closed and that works wonderfully well. Um, that stops mouth snoring straight away, but no snoring. That's when we change breathing volume. Mm. And so when you change breathing volume and breathing is lighter and the nose is easier to breathe through, 
it, it makes such a difference. Now, we do use a nasal dilator as well, mute snoring. Mm-hmm. So if an individual has really kind of compromised nasal airways or if they've been mouth breathing for a long time, they can they can lose muscle tone. So there's there's muscles in the nose which are designed to keep the nasal valves open. And uh, if you've been mouth breathing for a long time, mm-hmm. those muscles lose patency. So we use a small nasal dilator called Muse just to open up the nose. Is that just like a breathe right strip? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. We find that the breathe right strips don't stick so oh. well. And also then, you know, they, they don't last, you know, you put them on the next day. But it, breed right strips, they serve the purpose. And it's based on the, the Kotlin maneuver. But uh, the, the mm-hmm. mute is a, a small plastic device that you just mm-hmm. insert up into the nose. Yeah. And that keeps the nose open. And well, to determine that, you can what you can do is put one finger one side of your nostril mm-hmm. and the other finger the other side of your nostril and just mm-hmm. gently prise your nostrils apart. And you'll feel it's easier to breathe. So, Cottle uh, was an ENT back in the seventies. He discovered that, and yeah, that's what the device does. Mm. So, so back to yeah. So I'm saying, measure your bolt, mm-hmm. do the nose and blocking exercise, and then practice slowing down your breathing and slow down your breathing to the point that you get air hunger, and check the effect it has on your body. Mm. Do you feel warmer? Is there any change in the amount of saliva in the mouth? Do you feel drowsy? And then you know you're on the right track. Yeah, I definitely feel when I practice the exercises, I I feel a warmth, like a deep Uh warmth, um, tons of saliva in the mouth. And I feel an incredible sense of focus. Mm-hmm. And uh, all those, all those seem like really good byproducts. And I just want to say, thank you for doing what you do. You know, there are a thousand and one books out there teaching, telling people how to lose weight and get fit and do all kinds of stuff. But there are very mm-hmm. few talking about breathing. Yeah. But really, it seems like the breath underlies everything and can make yeah. life better, work better, exercise better. In your book, you talk about weight loss. We didn't even touch that. Uh, you yeah. talk about how it can help kids grow up and, and yes. grow their facial structures better. Better. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And Ravi, you know, yeah. just when you talk about children, sorry to cut across you. Sure. A philanthropist contacts us about a month ago. And he said, we want to make your course out free to all children, regardless mm. of financial circumstances. Mm. So our complete DVD course, um, the online DVD, it used to be $50, is now free. Oh, wow. Where can so, people find that? So you go to butecoclinic.com okay. and just go to DVD sets and scroll down to the children's course mm. and just click on that link then. And then if you scroll down a little bit, you'll see click here to access free online course. Mm. And that's the entire Buteco method. Mm. Um, so there's six exercises, everything about Buteco for children, right. the importance of it. I'm teaching three young kids. Right. One is four years of age and the other two kids are about eight or nine. Right. And I go through the exercise with them. So it's free for any kid anywhere in the world. Right. And Buteco was your mentor. Buteco originally, yeah, because I had chronic health issues. You know, I had asthma, I had blocked nose, I had stress, all that. And I was in the corporate world, but it wasn't working for me. I was so stressed and I didn't have the productivity. I'd driven myself to true university. I was very driven, you know, so I got there. But the amount of work that it took was too much because I, if you don't have concentration, you're putting in the hours, but you're not putting in the quality. Mm-hmm. And I remember a friend of mine, I studied three months for an exam. And it was a friend of mine came to me 20 minutes before the exam. And he says, do you have any notes there? Because he, he didn't have time to study it. He was setting up a business at the time. This was back in 1996 or whatever. And I handed him my notes and I watched him for 20 minutes. He had 100% of his attention on my notes. And I remember thinking here, I was only a 20-year-old. And I was thinking, there's no way I could do that. And I know he wasn't just looking at them. He was focused. So the two of us went off, we did our exam, and uh, the results came out. He got the same result that I got. It took me three months, it took him 20 minutes. Now the same guy, his name is Terry Clune. Um, he set up a business called taxback.com. He's got offices throughout the world. He's, you know, he's got a thousand employees. Um, he's made tremendous inroads in terms of the financial services sector. A genius brain, but he had concentration naturally Mm. i didn't have it but i had to develop it Mm. i developed it and it's made an immense amount of difference yeah we never look at concentration yeah well you've given you've given people some tools to help 
help bolster their concentration yes, and focus. Yes, absolutely. And that's that's sure. really fantastic. Yeah. You know, um, I, I hope we get to do this again. Hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you perhaps at one of your trainings uh, if you come stateside. Yeah, of <laughs> course. Can... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm stateside again next month. And uh, oh, okay. we've, we've got to always get a number of trainings going on, you know, either Oxygen Advantage or Buteco. Yeah. So okay, it's always wonderful. there. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, Patrick, thanks again and uh, hope to see you soon. Great. Thanks very much, Ravi. Thanks for tuning in. You can get further details about everything we've discussed on the website. Just visit raviraman.com forward slash podcast, where I have show notes as well as a full archive of all previous episodes. And if you're so inclined, leaving a rating and a review about the podcast helps other people to discover it. So if you're enjoying what I'm talking about, please take a moment and leave a quick rating and review. And that's all I've got for today. I'll see you in the next episode.